as a kind of a benediction for the year. And it seemed much more appropriate than uh, something administrative. Then we'll do the administrative things. <laughs> so this is a poem uh, that uh, was written by my friend Claire Morris, uh, who uh, lives in San Francisco and sends a poem every year as her holiday greeting to everyone she knows. And this is this year's poem, and I read it for the first time last night, and I thought that uh, what it brought up for me in my mind was what I would like to have as a, a part of my intention for this new year. So this is the poem. It's called Weed and Star. A man bends toward toward the edge of a new-mown lawn, his beard bright white beneath a lowered straw hat. Slowly, surgically, he trowels weed after weed from its city park moorings. Sometimes he holds a particular grass to the afternoon sun, admiring the nimbus around delicate fronds and seed pouches. Then he lays it down among other fallen kin in a burlap bag at his feet. My grandmother picked burrs from our sweaters when I was a child. She'd lift them to the light, pull them apart, examine their design, say as if for the first time, every seed is a work of art. She did the same with stars, touching each one, pulling it down for a moment from its garden of constellations, her eyes bright with their shine. So it never seems right to comment on a poem because it enters into everybody's heart differently. But later, when we talk about intention of practice, I'll probably read that poem again. So you know what? I'm really happy to be back. And... uh, Truth to tell, you know, I had a little bit of the feeling that I used to have when I was seven or six or eight, and you went back to school every September. Remember you felt like a little nervous before you went? Like maybe I'll forget what I knew last year, or maybe it won't work out as well this year as last year. You still have that ever? Yeah, but, you know, and... Uh, and uh, it's, 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 it's been sweet. You know, I've been talking to Donald, who sent me his whole list of things that he taught last year, and it's a whole orderly list. And I said, I said look at this whole orderly list. <clears throat> I'll have to have a whole orderly list now. He said, no, you don't, but I think I do. Anyway, I have a whole orderly list for January. And we'll see where we go from there, because it's going to be a different kind of a year. I'll be here in January. Donald and a guest are going to be here in uh, February. Uh, Is it you? All week long, when I was thinking of coming this morning, I kept thinking of, oh, this is what I want to read the first. This is what I really want to do the first. This is it. This is what I'm really going to do the first. Uh, 
And then I got the poem last night, and I read that. I'll come back to the poem. But this is really the one that I wanted to read the first. Um, there have been a, a lot of um, very touching kinds of stories on the Internet in the last couple of weeks about really what would it be if we could have peace on Earth. People have sent me beautiful um, animated videos of but this is this is not a beautiful story, but it's a story that really is so central to if I were going to tell you what did I think about most last year in terms of what have I really learned from practice, what do I really know, what is it that we really want to do, or and this isn't what we because that's a preaching word. It's that I really want to remember because uh, when I re- when I remember, I am better. Uh, this is a story written by a man who's uh, uh, by Steve Banco, who did two combat tours in Vietnam, uh, earning the Silver Star and four Purple Hearts. In 1996, he received the Terry Anderson Courage to Come Back Award for his struggles with alcoholism and depression. He's, a, he's been a civil servant in Buffalo, New York for 30 years. He's talking about, um, well... I've been moved by the words of Christmas music since the nuns in grammar school etched the words of the carols into my brain. The magic persists despite the memory of our prepubescent male voices that sounded more like a pond of bullfrogs than the Vienna Boys Choir. The music rose above us. Even our childhood rivalries and petty differences were no match for the spell of that music talked about his learning. He said, but I learned the real music 10 years later. On Christmas Eve, 1968, I was a patient in a military hospital in Yokota, Japan. My leg had been shattered by a couple of machine gun bullets in a five-hour battle in Vietnam. My body was full of shrapnel and my hands had been badly burned. For three weeks, army doctors in Vietnam struggled to save my leg. They sent me to Japan on that Christmas Eve to give the new team of surgeons a chance to work their magic. I was in desperate need of magic. Somewhere it was Christmas, but it didn't feel like it to me, at least not until I heard the music pipe through the PA system. A chorus sang of peace on earth and mercy mild and promised God and sinners reconciled. Another voice called, Let us all with one accord sing heavenly praises and another to sleep in heavenly peace. But heaven and peace seemed very distant to me. My misery was interrupted by a low moan coming from the next bed. All I could see was a white cast, shaped like a body, cutouts for his eyes, nose, and mouth, were the only breaks in the cast. Even as the music inched inched me toward comfort, the reality of pain anchored me in the present. But looking at my neighbor in God knows what kind of pain, mine didn't seem nearly as important. The soft strains of Silent Night was filling the air of the ward when the nurses made final rounds with our medications. When my nurse approached, I asked her to push my bed closer to the man in the cast. I reached out and took my new friend's hand as the carol told us, All is calm, all is bright. We spoke no words to each other. None were needed. The carol revived the message of hope and the triumph of love for me. I felt a slight tightening on my hand. And for the first time, 
That Christmas, I felt I would survive my ordeal, and for the first time in a long time, I wanted to. Makes me cry again when I read it. I said before, there's nothing to say after you read poetry. But if I think about, if someone said to me, they do a lot now, how can you say about, how can you tell what you teach about in two minutes or three minutes or a few sentences? And say, really, it's about that it's very difficult for all of us. We are confronted with our own pain, inside and outside, physical and mental, a life full of pains. And when we draw nearer to each other and we reach out our hand and someone reaches out their hand, in actuality or metaphorically, but we know that we're moving closer to each other, it's better. That's all. And it becomes a little bit hopeful. We're not doing this alone. I'm looking back. I see Jane Barras back there. And do you know this is James's wife back there? Do you know James's wife? This is James's wife. <laughs> uh, and one of the stories that uh, both James and I tell is, uh, and you've probably heard it too, of uh, is of sitting in uh, sitting on a retreat in Hawaii in 1987. Um, and hearing the news that there was a tsunami uh, on, uh, coming across the Pacific, a tidal wave, because there had been an earthquake off the coast of Japan. And um, there was no way to evacuate the 60 or 70 people from that center. There was one car and 60 people and a windy mountainous road. It wasn't a possibility. And the civil defense said, take the highest ground you could, you can, which was the second floor of a bungalow which wasn't very high ground uh, at, at the edge of the ocean. And, uh, and so we did. We took supplies upstairs and we sat down. And everybody was very calm. And uh, our uh, teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said uh, there'd been a, there was a Zen story about someone who asked a Zen master of long ago, what would you do if you heard that the waters of the north and the south and the east and the west were all rising? And he said, I don't know. I guess that's it. So... And Joseph said, let's sit. And we sat. And you can tell that, first of all, you can tell that the tsunami didn't come. Here we all are. <laughs> but uh, the most important recollection I have of that afternoon, um, everybody sat quietly, was that people are very courageous. I mean, it became clear after a while, to me, I'm sure to everybody else, it was either going to happen or it wasn't going to happen. In a certain context, you know, we're all going to die sometimes. And I was thinking to myself, I don't want to die drowning. Nobody wants to die anyway, at any time. But uh, there isn't a better or a worse way. And besides, you don't get a choice. So I remember sitting there and feeling very frightened, but sitting still and taking some breaths just in the same way that I was encouraging you to take breaths as we sat together. Because as soon as my mind caught a breath, it could notice it. Okay, there's a breath. There's another breath. There's another breath. I'm really cold. My body is shaking. There's another breath. There's another breath. They're telling yourself what's happening right now. I'm really cold. My heart is pounding. I'm sitting here. I'm really cold. 
My heart is pounding. My hands are cold. I'm taking a breath. If you say what's happening right now, right now is okay. It calms itself. It steadies the mind. And I opened my eyes and I looked out. There were some sweet things to see. Somebody was sitting with binoculars. We're all looking out a glass window. You know, the, uh, there was a bungalow with a wide, wide window. And we're all facing the ocean. So you could look out. You could see the horizon. You could imagine it. You know, is it moving? Do I see it coming? And and one person was sitting with binoculars as if somehow he'd have a head up, uh, you know, on everybody, leg up on everybody else. You know, it wouldn't matter if you saw it one second before somebody else, but... And uh, somebody was listening with an earphone to probably the civil defense radio, you know. And you think, ha, huh, somebody had a radio on this retreat. You're not supposed to have a radio on the retreat. <laughs> but, you know, when the chips are down, they bring their radio out to listen to the civil defense. But the two parts that are important is, one is Len Schlosser, who's no longer in this world, uh, who wasn't an administrator with KCBS, was uh, on that retreat. And I, I had the thought, if it doesn't come here, we'll let Len use the one telephone that we had. This is way before cell phones, too. We'll use let, 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 let Len use the telephone first because he could call KCBS, they could put on the radio for everyone that it didn't hit Hawaii. So everyone who knew about the tsunami wouldn't be worried about us who knew us. And the other story that, that I remember, the other part of it, was that James was sitting next to me, and I remember thinking the thought, I hope James gets to go home because uh, his first child was going to get born that fall, and I wanted him to be home with Jane for Adam's birth. And the minute that I was thinking about somebody else getting home, I felt better. It's like, I'm not doing this. I'm not the only person here doing this. James has to get home for Jane and Adam. And Len has to get home to tell KCBS, to tell everybody else's people. The minute that my attention remembers that life is very hard all the time for everybody, but we are all doing it together. And everybody wants to get home safe from not just every tsunami, from every single thing. Everybody wants to get off this plane with me safely. Everybody wants to get through this flu epidemic safely. Everybody wants to get through this year safely. And some of us won't, and some of us won't. But when I remember that everybody wants it as much as I, first of all, I'm caught my own compassion saves me. I'm, I'm not so caught in my own story. In the context of all those stories, it's just one of the stories. It's what happens. Everybody's life has a trajectory one way or another. doesn't mean that I want, I'm any more happy about mine being compromised. It means I'm all right with it. I mean, the wisdom is things happen to people. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to read this today. This is a poem by a uh, Polish woman whose name I actually... I think it's Zimborska, more or less. Zimborska, is that right? Do you know this Polish poet, Naomi? I know her work. Yeah. This is called Could Have. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. 
You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. You were alone with others on the right, on the left, because it was raining, because of the shade, because the day was sunny. You were in luck, there was a forest. You were in luck, there were no trees. You were in luck, a rake, a hook, a beam, a break, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. You're still here? Still dizzy from another dodge. Close shave, reprieve, one hole in the net and you slipped through. I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen how your heart pounds inside me. It's 2008. When I was very young, I used to wonder about if I... I used to think about 2000 and that I'd be 64 in 2000, which seemed to me to be about one million when I thought about it. Uh, Still seems pretty old, actually. But but 2000... In 1908... Teddy Roosevelt was president. That was the first time an electric ball fell from the flagpole atop the New York Times building. That year, when that year ended, 366 days later, because it was a leap year, Wilbur Wright had flown two and a half hours, the longest flight ever made by an airplane. The U.S. Navy's fleet had sailed around the world. Admiral Robert Perry had begun his conquest of the North Pole. Dr. Frederick Cook either reached the North Pole or claimed to. And six automobiles set out on a 2,000-mile race from New York to Paris. The Model T Ford went into production at Henry Ford's plant in Detroit, Michigan. The country was confident in its genius and resourcefulness not to mention its military might, and was more comfortable than ever in playing a dominant role in global affairs. 1908 was an election year, and parallels between it and 2008 are interesting. Americans of 1908 were coming off two terms of a Republican president who had abruptly set their country on a new course. He was a wealthy Ivy League-educated Easterner who had gone west as a young man and made himself into a cowboy. (laughs) Like George Walker Bush, Theodore Roosevelt entered the White House without winning the popular vote. He was assassinated. The the person before him was assassinated. Not sure. I think it was William McKinley. I just wanted to read to you that a hundred years ago, the Wright brothers flew, the, and it was, I think, just before, uh, a couple of years early, that they did that 17-second flight. And then they flew two and a half hours. And now people are, as you know, getting eight, the, the, the plane with 800 people flying on it is soon coming into use. More than that, we have antibiotics. We can do in vitro fertilization. We can cure all kinds of diseases that people hadn't even 
been able to identify at the time, you have tremendous amount of things that human beings have learned to do just with brains and the material on this earth. And the earth is in a very bad way. And the world is in a very bad way. And I think that um, spiritual practice, this practice, any spiritual practice, when I think of it as spiritual practice, I think of what is going to keep the spirit alive so that the part of us that says, move me over closer to that person so I can close their, hold their hand with whatever befalls them, rather than let's take up arms against that person. We haven't made so much progress, I don't think, in that. Or maybe we've made progress and just the weapons that we have to do destruction are bigger. I don't know. But I think that the key to it is always wisdom. And really the point, I wanted to spend these first four weeks going over the the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, which are really the keystone, the centerpiece of Buddha's teaching. I decided that for two reasons. Well, one of the reasons I told you before, Donald sent me a list of what all he had taught last year, so orderly. So I said, okay, I'm going to do orderly also, and I'll, uh, or at least I'll try to start orderly. Like, in, yeah, I got a new notebook, uh, some new stories. I've already told an old story, which I didn't plan to, but it came up. But one of the things that's true uh, wait, 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 wait. This is another piece of paper. piece of paper that's been going around the, the Buddhist world, at least, is a, and you may have seen it, is a, uh, an article, an opinion article in, uh, article in the Wall Street Journal written by Clark Strand. Did you read that? It's about a month ago. It went through. He's a writer for Tricycle. And uh, he's writing about his hope uh, the, about the numbers of Buddhists and people who will identify as Buddhists in this country, uh, that one third of them were not born as Buddhists. They're not ethnic Buddhists. They didn't. They weren't born into a, a culture that was a Buddhist culture. One third of them are us. They're people who have chosen to study Buddhism, study what the Buddha taught, identify with Buddhism, and practice the practice path of the Buddha. And he's talking about his concern that uh, uh, that the next generation that it's a boomer event. His concern is not is not uh, 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 this is not the first time I've heard that concern. We worried about it at, at Spirit Rock. We worried about it, but I'm happy to tell you we see a new generation of people now coming. And uh, the point of this article is that uh, one of the good things about a recognized religion is that people who have a, a, a commitment to a religious path, in this country it's been traditionally a Christian path or a Jewish path as the mainstream paths. The people who had a commitment to that path committed their children to that path early on, one way or another, with uh, Sunday school or teaching stories or holiday observance, so that a person grew up uh, not know and the point of doing that was not so that your child would grow up knowing how to celebrate Purim, but that your child would grow up interested in thinking about loving your neighbor as yourself or uh, behaving in a moral way, interested in what are actually the the teaching components and the core 
of religious thought in any religious tradition in Christianity as well, at the core of the love one another as I have loved you. But in order to raise children so that they were interested in what does my spiritual tradition demand of me, I have to know how to play their songs and play their games and eat their food and have their parties and celebrate their holidays. And so this is mainly an essay uh, that say I'm concerned that the Buddhists of today aren't really uh, asking that. They're going twice a year to a, a seven or eight day retreat to refresh themselves. But they, And they're saying when my children grow up, maybe they'll learn to meditate. But what I actually hear him saying is it's not about meditation. It's about learning what's important and really learning what's the core of a path. But he has a very interesting point. That was That's his conclusion, but he had this very interesting point. He said, from the beginning, Buddhism has been seen in its American incarnation not as an alternative religion, but as an alternative to religion, which is very interesting. How many of you thought that, that it was an alternative to religion? Yeah? Or liked it because it was an alternative to religion? <laughs> Had enough of that. And, but then it goes on to say that that's not a bad idea, that there could be... Um, uh, and, and actually Clark Strand goes on to say that Buddhism... Uh, that that many the the Buddhism that's been imported into the United States has been brought especially to appeal to people who did not want dogma. How many people here heard early on on their first retreat the Buddha's advice to the people of Kamala? Do not uh, believe anything that people tell you just because they're a Buddha, just because they're a noted sage, just because they're a teacher, just because they're your friend. You do it yourself. If it works for you then it's useful, then do it. You don't have to become an ist. You know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Uh, that uh, You don't have to become an anything. You become a practitioner. Some of my friends who are long, long-standing uh, senior teachers in the Dharma will self-identify as a practitioner of the Dharma. Well, not as a this or a that. This or that has a, for whatever reasons they do that, but... But, and he's actually saying maybe it's true. Maybe we could, uh, maybe we could actually take the, the dharma that's been given to us, which is free of dogma and free of uh, 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 any of the more questionable parts of all of the Buddhisms that we know about in Asia. Maybe we can take it as an American import and actually make it a non-dogmatic, peaceful practice-based religion. And then think of religion in the, in the etymological sense of the word religion. Because the word religion, if you take it apart, means to tie back, to connect back together. You know, re means to do it again. And the, 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 the root L-I-G means to connect, like a ligament connects a, a, a muscle to a bone. And it's like to put yourself together as a religion. And I, I actually think of not so much maybe put yourself together as put yourself together. And put yourself together and say, well, I can do this life. It's difficult. So I thought what I'd like to do in these weeks, and we're doing it. See, I had the plan. Not in the order I thought I'd do it, but it's doing it. Is that we would, that we would talk about the Four Noble Truths. Because one of the things that's 
a, a fact about uh, there isn't a Buddhism, by the way. You can't say uh, you cannot if you start out a sentence by saying uh, Buddhists believe. You know already that the the sentence has got to be false, because there are all kinds of Buddhisms and all kinds of beliefs between all those Buddhisms. If we took a poll here about who here has, has absolute confidence in rebirth and reincarnation, or who feels uh, that uh, the Buddha was actually born. Uh, and uh, stood on his own feet and walked seven steps and declared that this was his last incarnation. There are all kinds of stories that that are there. There are there are um, there's there is philosophy and cosmology. There's also folk tales. I think what we probably can say what we all believe in here is that we could have a practice-based, peaceful, non-dogmatic mind. Which we'd like. Would everybody like that? I would like that. I would like a peaceful, non-dogmatic world, and I think that this is one way of sharing it. And within Buddhist circles, you know, if you talk to Zen people or Tibetan Buddhists or in Japan, uh, uh, the Buddhism in Japan, apart from Zen, is quite different and often very devotional and actually. When people say Buddhists don't have anything that they pray to out there, that's not true. The large majority of Buddhists pray to whatever is out there. Uh, So there are all kinds of beliefs involved in Buddhism. But one of the things that all of the Buddhisms will recognize as a shared, if not belief, but a shared core, is is the Four Noble Truths, that this is true. And they'll leave the, uh, say it in their own words, but this is true, that uh, the vision of Shakyamuni Buddha, when he expounded what he had realized in his own enlightenment, is true, that life is difficult just by its own nature because it's impermanent. Doesn't mean it's terrible. Uh, I was going to read to you two little parts. Oh, okay, we have a little bit... This is to say, I also think every religion, every culture teaches this to children that life is difficult. And it's also to have a little relief from some of the, from the story about the man and the body cast in Vietnam. You put up your hand as soon as you recognize this contemporary American writer. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair and when I got out of bed this morning I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. (laughs) At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his cereal breakfast box and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box but in my breakfast cereal box all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. 
At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said Philip Parker was his best friend and that Alfred Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double deck of strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off in the co- off the cone part and lands in Australia. <laughs> One more. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? <laughs> Anyway, it's a very long book, but we read this to our children from early on, very end. So we went to the shoe store to buy sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes, but then the shoe man said we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones, but they can't make me wear them. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. It was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. (laughs) When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says, some days are like that. <laughs> so I think we teach this to children from the beginning on. That first, huh? It's Judith Viorst. It's Judith Viorst. Did you know that she was the one that wrote Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? <laughs> Judith Viorst is a wonderful writer. I think uh, I think that we start to teach children early on. So things don't always go your way. Sometimes they seem all not to go your way. I think that the message of that and the reason that we respond to it so well as 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 adults is that it it's an uh, it's an early imprint of life is really difficult. It doesn't go your way. When we prayed for people this morning. And we said, my uncle who's about to have cancer, this one who has that, that one has that. Bonnie has invasive breast cancer. That all of a sudden we realize that that all around us are people having terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Which doesn't mean that it isn't beautiful that a new baby got born last week and another one's getting born as we speak. And when I went to Los Angeles two weeks ago, I went to visit my friend whose uh, triplets are now 12, two years old. You remember we were praying for them two years ago that they'd get born well. Those triplets are two years old. They're so cute. It's, it's, like, it's not a usual thing to have three small people in the same family walking around looking, like, looking not like each other at all, actually. They are three totally different little girls. But they're about the same size, and they relate to each other in a two-year-old way. It's the cutest thing in the world, and they're starting in on this long conveyor belt (laughs) that conveys you along, and you don't know what you're going to meet at the end. And you're going to meet this or that because you were on the left or on the right or in the next car. The woman who's uh, the... um, 
a physical therapist that I go to from time to time when my uh, neck uh, jo- uh, nerve gets pinched, we were talking about coincidences. And she said, well, I met my husband on a train in France. That's a coincidence. He sat down in the seat next to me. I was out of college. I was traveling in France. He sat down in the tre- seat next to me. But what was really gives you the da-da-da-da is he missed the train before that he was supposed to be on. Now you realize that if he got on that train, everybody would have had a whole different life. And that is true for all of us as well. If we had crossed any street, any accident that we arrive at and we say, oh, this happened five minutes ago. Look, the police are just coming. So we were five minutes away. For every day we have five minutes or an hour or three hours away from some accident that we could have been in. We get home. The, the, the end of that poem. Where's, where's the end of the poem? The end of the poem. Did you make it through? Still dizzy from another dodge, a close shave, another reprieve. One hole in the net that you slipped through. I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. That it really... And for everybody, it's that same fragile way, and it keeps on changing. I, this was a story I was going to tell you about uh, Ghidra said, came up to say hello to me, and I was happy to see her. I haven't been here in a while, I haven't seen her in a while. And she said, uh, this morning, and she said, you're coming to Berkeley tomorrow night, aren't you? I said, yeah, I was excited. You'll be there. She said, good. She'll be there. And uh, she said, dress very warmly. It's extremely cold there. And they don't, let, they don't let us turn on the heat until the monks are finished with their chanting. So when you get in there, it's very cold. And then when we turn on the heat, it gets too hot. And, it, and it, oh, No, she didn't say it gets too hot. It gets too noisy because the heat is very noisy. And so I, th- I said, I'm going to tell this later because this is the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery replication of Alexander and the no good, terrible, you know, <laughs> it's too cold, it's too, it's too noisy, it's too this, it's too that. It's extremely hard to make yourself comfortable. Uh, I, I, was ha- I was having dinner with my, uh, uh, with my youngest grandchildren last night from whom I retrieved this Alexander and the no good, terrible, horrible, very bad day. And I said... Um, I said, can you think of another story where, uh, oh, I, I, I know, we went out to eat in Fresh Choice, and we were talking about uh, something that was uh, too hot or too cold there. I said, okay, that, things are like that. I said, they're too hot or too cold. I said, can you think of a story about that? So they didn't think about this. They thought, what's the story that children learn about too hot, too cold? Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I mean, that's the first thing we tell everybody. This is too hot. This is too cold. This is just right, and it's all gone. It's all gone. This uh, chair is too hard. This chair is too soft. This one is just right, and breaks. breaks. So I, I think actually these are, because these stories exist through the generations, they exist because they are imparting basic truths about the nature of reality from a very, their uh, wisdom tales, as told to a two-year-old, really on a. That's about when we start to do Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's sort of reminding people things change, and often they're difficult. Really, the first noble truth is things change, keep on changing; they don't stay the same. 
And so you can't really rely the, the, on life to be comfortable. The idea that Buddhism, that Buddhism is a uh, is a suffering is a is a more suffering in it than other religions, I think, is not true. The Buddha was called the happy one. There are uh, any number, of, I think, seventeen different ways in Pali to say the word joy. So it's not a, a joyless religion. Here's James teaching his joy course. Lots of different ways to say joy. And my sense is that the central joy is the joy of having wisdom that stays intact so that the mind doesn't get confused by the fleeting broadsides of inconvenience. That's a funny phrase, the fleeting broadsides of inconvenience. That's a good name for a book, but I am booked out, so it's not happening. Somebody else can write the fleeting broadsides of inconvenience. But when you think about it, the whole life is fleeting broadsides of inconvenience. You turn into this parking lot, oh, it's full. All right, I go upstairs, I find a place. We are always accommodating to something, but everybody's always accommodating. And to accommodate without the mind becoming irritated at it. My mother-in-law, of blessed memory, may she be well on whatever realm, used to laugh. We'd go out of a building and it would have perhaps started to rain. And she'd say, just my luck, it's raining. Like the whole cosmos was on behalf of her. You know, that, you know. <laughs> it's a, such a... <laughs> but it's a suffering way, you know, the whole co- to see things if you see it only out of your perspective. That's why I think it's so important to remember that this is a shared trip. I didn't tell about the hand-holding in Hawaii, did I? I did. I, I said about James and I holding hands. No, I thought, I thought it. I thought it, but I didn't tell you that. James was sitting next to me. I wanted him to go home. I reached out my... Oh, he was sitting like this, meditating as I was, eyes closed. And I tapped him on the knee. And he opened his eyes. And I put out my hand. And he held it. Who sits here on a meditation retreat holding hands? We discourage that, you know. We tell you, don't touch anybody. Don't look at anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Custody of the eyes. We don't tap, tap, tap. And give out a hand. But, but I did. And so we sat there. There's a special tsunami you sit holding hands. There's a special codicil to that rule, you know. In the event of a tsunami... You can put out your hand and hold somebody. So we sat and held hands for a while. And it was much better, holding hands. My friend Mary, uh, who many of you have met because she comes here and teaches with me from time to time, my friend Mary Neal, who's a uh, Dominican sister here in San Rafael, did her doctoral thesis... um, on a particular Scottish philosopher whose name was MacDonald or McDougald, I'm not sure. But his, the metaphor that I learned from her, that she learned from him, is about holding hands. She said, when we get born in this world, hands catch us. And that we reach in and pull out. But hands catch us. And at the end of our lives, hands will put us into whatever final place are what's left of us is and and all along the way we are passed along hand to hand 
And uh, if you watch, uh, I like to watch in, uh, in, in public places when there's a big person with a very small person and the big person's arm is down and the small person's arm is up and they're, and they're walking like this. Because you know that in the course of if they are both fortunate to live enough years, they'll hold hands like this for a while and then the little person will be holding the big person up and eventually pushing them. And we hand each other over. But, I mean, we get handed along. But the metaphor of holding hands is why, uh, not the metaphor, the actuality of holding hands is why I uh, really responded so much to that um, Vietnam veteran story. And his request, move me over closer to that person. I would really like if I had a... uh, um, a prayer. I don't. Metta is a prayer anyway. You know, I think it was our uh, Western uh, sensitivity about saying any word that reminded people of religion, because many people were wounded by religion and don't want to know about prayer. But saying "May all beings be peaceful and happy" is a prayer. That's a prayer. You say it's a blessing, but it's a. It's also a hope and a wish. But that particular prayer, may I feel moved to get closer in actuality or in my heart to other people would be a very sustaining prayer for me because it would remind me to forget my own story and remember the other story. We're all doing this together. It's amazing that we do it. People are heroic. This is Nyanapanaka, who I like so much, I mean, who I admire so much as a teacher. Jana Panaka was a uh, German Jew who uh, went to university in uh, Germany and then moved to Sri Lanka and took robes and became a monk. And when he died somewhere, probably eight or ten years ago, he had been for many years, he was nearly a hundred years old, and he had been for many years the uh, head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy in Sri Lanka. And... um, he wrote really some very beautiful things, which I admire a lot. But this is Nyanapanaka um, on, on really writing about compassion. But I want to tell you, I, I think this is his description of the situation of human beings, the situation of the world. The world suffers, but most people have their eyes and ears closed. They don't see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They don't hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. Their own little grief or joy bars their sight, deafens their ears. Bound by selfishness, their hearts turn stiff and narrow. Being stiff and narrow, they should be able... How should they be able to strive for any higher goal to realize that the only release from selfish craving... That only release from selfish craving will effect their own freedom from suffering. It's not possible really to talk about the first noble truth without talking about the second noble truth because, uh, and and, uh, you just heard the hint of it there, that life is difficult is the first noble truth. Is that a pessimistic thing to say? say, No, it's a realistic thing to say. It is difficult. Alexander, Judith Viorst, every folk tradition knows that life is difficult. This is uh, Rahula Wampala, which was probably the first, uh, one of the first uh, Buddhist texts that I read. 
first noble truth is generally translated by almost all scholars as the noble truth of suffering. And it's interpreted to mean that life, and it's often interpreted to mean that life according to Buddhism is nothing but suffering and pain. Both translation and interpretation are unsatisfactory and misleading. It's because this is of this misleading translation that many people have thought of Buddhism as pessimistic. First of all, Buddhism is neither pessimistic nor optimistic. If it's anything at all, it is realistic. It takes a realistic view of life in the world. It does not falsely lull you into living in a fool's paradise, nor does it frighten and agonize you with all kinds of imaginary fears and sins. It tells you exactly and objectively what you are and what the world around you is and shows you a way to perfect freedom, peace, tranquility, and happiness. This is a nice paragraph to read. One physician may gravely exaggerate an illness and give up hope altogether. Another may ignorantly declare that there's no illness and that no treatment is necessary, thus deceiving the patient with a false consolation. You may call the first one pessimistic and the second one optimistic. Both are equally dangerous. A third physician would diagnose the symptoms correctly, understand the cause and the nature of the illness, see clearly that it can be cured, and courageously administer a course of treatment, thus saving the patient. The Buddha is like the last physician. He is the wise and scientific doctor for the ills of the world. The Buddha does not deny happiness in life when there's happiness. On the contrary, it lists different forms of happiness, both material and spiritual, for lay people as well as for monks. In the original um, Anguttara Nikaya, which is part of the Pali s- s- scriptures, there's a list of happinesses such as happiness of family life, happiness of the life of the recluse, the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness of attachment and the happiness of detachment, physical happiness and mental happiness. But these are all included in dukkha because everything is overshadowed by the fact that things change and become challenged. And any of those things, so that we have happinesses through our lives and certainly uh, things that uh, we want to have happen that happen and we're delighted by it. I think it's not pessimistic. I think it is realistic. And they don't last. And it's not about not taking on things. It's not the, it's actually the middle path really talks about not the life of the renunciate, but to take joy in this life from the ways that you can take it and to enjoy being a person in this life. And for most of us to actually enjoy thinking of the lives of others as well as a source of our joy. But to realize that a source of our happiness I'm going to leave happiness separate from joy because I'm learning that as I'm thinking more about uh, James's teachings. Maybe that that, that uh, the happiness that I'm talking about is the happiness of the mind at ease, realizing that it couldn't be other. There are ways to uh, uh, really uh, create joy in the mind or locate joy in the mind that buoy up the ability for the mind to stay content and balanced. Even in the midst of troubles. One of the very touching stories that 
I, it comes into my mind, is uh, um, Frank Ostaseski, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center, hospice, told the story of sitting on the, be- on the bed of a friend of his, a man who was dying, and the other person sitting on the bed was this other person's, uh, another man, this other person's long-term partner. Man in the bed is dying. And that, and uh, he and his partner, and Frank, I suppose, are talking about the old times when they were well and good times that they have had, had had. And the other man said, that the, here's Frank, and the, man, the other man sitting on the bed said to Jim in the bed, we've had some really good times in our life, Jim. And Jim saying back, I'm having a really good time right now. Is that kind of mind's ability to say, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And I'm okay with it. It's an enormously optimistic... I think Rahula Wampala is wrong. So it's not pessimistic or optimistic. I think it's tremendously optimistic to think that human minds, so programmed because we are animals, to comfort... We always, animals impulsively make themselves more comfortable. They get up right away when it's hot and they go sit in the shade. They eat when they feel like they... We, we actually have a lot of room in our mind to feel like having things a certain way and say, it's not that way I can manage. And more than that, it's not that way I can be content. Not I don't like it. I wouldn't like it another way. I would like it another way. But this way I can like too. <coughs> That's the story, I suppose, of Jim and Tom, is, you know, at that point, to say what I like it another way doesn't make any sense. It's not another way. It's this way. Can I like this way too? You know? Think about it for a minute. That actually seems to me very important. Uh, it comes up a lot in, in conversations I have now. Uh, the uh, older I get, we're all getting older, but somehow, all of a sudden, I am in a community of, uh, I find myself, because I've picked them out in my mind, in, 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 the, in the company of old women. Uh, not actually literally, but I'm thinking about this one here and that one there and this one here and that one there. And uh, watching them, they, they are my teachers, whether they know it or not. Uh, who's doing this with grace? People say to me, now, now, I'm, nowadays a lot, I get interviewed a lot, so the people say, well, you know, you've been teaching a long time, you're going to keep teaching, how is it about getting old? So the, but the question about getting old comes up a lot. And it's interesting, you say, well, someone said, would you rather be uh, younger? <laughs> but you can't be, you know, uh, yeah. So it's one of those things. You know, the question for me is, can I be happy this way? You know, uh, can I be happy that I'm, si- I'm sitting on a chair now? I used to sit on a zafu. <laughs> Much more if I sit too long on the chair, I won't feel good afterwards either. But you know, that's what it is. And I think it's not about liking what's going on. It's about being able to maintain a mind that is non-coercive and non. Um, combative, non-contentious. Those are three words. 
coercive, combative, contentious with what's going on, that which is a mind that is rooted in wisdom. It couldn't be other. It couldn't be other. This is how it is. And a lot of times you think, well, it could be other if you had done this or that, or worked more in the gym or did this or every single day done yoga. But I didn't. So it can't be other. You know? It couldn't be other. It can't be. Nothing can ever be other. It's the way it is because we're on the right or the left or we got on first or last or it was raining or it was sunny or it was a forest or it was trees. You don't know. One way or another, by miracle and close shave, we make it through each day. And how to know that they are limited without being despondent. You probably all know this one. It's a good way to end. I think it's a good way to end. If it isn't, I'll read the end of the Metta Sutta. This is Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, a flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to a birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed with paint in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day, just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Just as a mother would give her life to protect her child, her only child, just so should we with a boundless heart cherish all living beings. I think that the answer that's going to come at the end of the Four Noble Truths is good. We stayed with the first one today, more or less. I didn't think I could do that. Because the end, you know, when you see the answer at the end of the fourth lecture so clearly... The impulse is to jump there, but you all know the answer. The answer is to say, move my bed over to that person. Give me your hand. Hello, how are you? And to have the heart and the mind that wants you to do it. And in between are the questions, what gets in the way of my mind and heart being in that mode so that I'm caught up in this suffering? And what did he say? Most people, I don't know, go back to Rahula Wampala. No, Nyanapanaka. Most people have their eyes and ears closed. They do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life, and yet nor do they hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. It is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. I think, I believe that the four noble truths, principally the fourth truth, which is the practice path, is a path that removes, that leads to wisdom, that removes the bar that closes the heart. And I think that's what we're doing. We have one minute to 11. So rather than do this out loud, 
why don't we just sit and think for yourself what intentions for yourself, for your own practice for this year. What would you like? What, what promises? It's a time for New Year's resolutions. I'd, I'd like to invite you to make them in the forms of uh, prayers rather than I am certainly going to. May I sit every day. May I keep my mind on the truth. You make your own may I's. May this really be a year in which the world turns around. May we dedicate the merit of our practice, of our being here together, of our joining our minds and our hearts together in each of our intentions. To manifest ourselves in kindness. May that merit be offered freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings everywhere come to the end of suffering. Well, I'm very glad to be back. I'm very pleased I didn't forget everything that I knew. <laughs> I had a little bit of first day of school aritis. <laughs> so I'll either see you tomorrow or somewhere else, in, tomorrow in Berkeley or next week here. Probably seven in the evening. I just wanted to tell you that Barbara Tone...